The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Good morning. It's good to see you. Thanks for being here. Will you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. Lord, sometimes it causes us to stumble. It sets us back, makes us think, what on earth is going on? Uh, we pray for your help in these moments. Lord, help us to do the hard work, to think about what you're saying, and uh, then to take you at, at your word, Lord, and to, to hear you. God, we thank you that you are here with us by your spirit. We thank you for your love that we have in Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we come before your word now, thinking about it, we ask for your help. I pray that you'd help me to explain it clearly, and I'd help, I pray that you'd help all of us, God, to have open eyes, open hearts, open ears, to see you for who you are, uh, see ourselves for who we are, and turn to your son. We pray this in his name. Amen. All right, we are in our fourth message in our series on having an answer for what we believe. It says in 1 Peter 3:15, Peter writes to Christians, he says, "In your hearts honor Christ Jesus, Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you." A few things to notice here, as Christians we have a hope we have good promises from God that we're leaning on. We're basing our lives on them. It gives us joy, it gives us meaning, gives us purpose. So we have a hope. The second thing is we have reasons for that hope. We're not just waiting for the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow or trying to find the unicorn or learn how to use the lightsaber. That's all pretend. What we believe is real. It's based in history. It claims to be truth. And so we have a reason for the hope we believe. Another thing it shows us is that questions are okay. And I think we need to see this as the church. Questions are okay. Some of us maybe grew up in religious systems where if you had a hard question, they're like, don't talk about that. Don't ask that. Don't bring that up. We don't want to go there. Uh, the Bible's not like that at all. If this is true, bring your question. Bring your question. Let's talk about it. Let's think about it. It might challenge you. You might get to a point of mystery, but there's going to be an answer for what we believe. And we see again from this verse that all Christians, we're told, aren't we? Know what you believe and have an answer for it when people ask you, why do you believe that? So the last few weeks we have worked on the integrity of the Bible, whether or not the Bible's trustworthy. Last week we talked about the problem of evil, and today we are talking about Two, what I think are common challenges to what's two-thirds of the Bible. So these are two apparent problems with what we call the Old Testament. So here's the scenario. You're, you're talking with your friend. They be, they're, they're, they're interested in Christianity. And you say, hey, let's, you know, why don't you just start by reading the Bible? And okay, maybe they start with the Gospel of Mark. And you feel, you feel excited. You feel happy because, you know, I'm proud of Jesus and what he's like in that book. And so they're reading them. And then, but then one day you get together for coffee and they come to you with that, kind of crooked, concerned face, and you know what happened. They started reading the Bible from the beginning, and they came to the book of Leviticus. <laughs> oh, read the Bible, but don't read that one. Is that, is that the way we feel? <laughs> don't, don't read those. 
Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they, they come to you, and if you have the conversation, they say, all right, look, there's some weird rules in here and some weird clothes. They're constantly killing animals. I'm going to have to cancel my membership with you know, my local PETA community. But then they might say, and you don't do any of this. You claim the whole Bible's God's word, and yet I'm reading all these things, and, and you, don't, you don't talk about these things, you don't do any of these things. That sounds really convenient. You're just picking and choosing what parts of the Bible you like. So they have, first of all, a problem, an intellectual problem, maybe a conscience problem with what we would call the law in the Old Testament. And then we as Christians seem um, inconsistent. They've got all these rules, no bacon, and we're like, praise God for bacon. What's going on? But then that, that will also uh, lead to a more difficult problem, and that is the apparent brutality of the God of the Old Testament. And let's be honest, how many of you have read the Old Testament and been like, whoa, okay? Your friend will tell you, it looks like your God demands genocide. And so again... You're talking about love and grace and everybody's welcome and God's talking about wipe them out. So what gives? You know, and that leads to this other thing of, see, it's what I thought. Religion, it's always bad. It's a poison. It ruins the world. It's just a reason for people to dominate and abuse one another. That's an appetizer for next week, okay? We're going to talk about that next week. But what, what today? What's, what's your answer as a Christian These problems with the Old Testament, the apparently brutal God who makes these overwhelming, uh, controlling rules that that we don't follow anyway, and that secondly seems to demand from Israel uh, brutality like genocide. What are we going to do? What's your answer? Now, as we start, let me just say these things, they kind of feel like we're arguing for something really distant, way back there, old, Old Testament stuff. But in the end, the point's going to land right here. And it's going to be something that is a problem for every person when they deal with God at any time. This is going to be practical stuff. So let's listen for that as we begin with the first question, the laws in Leviticus. So you're trucking through the story in Exodus. You're having fun. God's saving his people from Egypt. you get a little slowed down towards the end, and then you hit Leviticus, and you're stuck in the mud. And you're thinking, what is going on? Now, let's remember what we're doing here. We're doing one sermon, okay? So that greatly limits us as to what we can talk about. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this from the big picture, and this is the way we need to see it anyway. I'm going to take this from the big picture. How many of you, you don't need to raise your hands, but just give me that agreement with the eyeballs. How many of you have read through the book of Leviticus? All right? Okay. You've read through it. You may have noticed one word and one theme pretty much dominated the entire book. And the word is this. It's the word holy. Eighty times in 20 plus chapters, the word holy is used. Pick up on something there. What is the book about? It's about holiness. Okay. Well, then the next question What is holiness? Well, just listen to this verse from Leviticus 11.45, and we'll walk through it briefly together. This is Leviticus 11, verse 45. God says, 
I'm the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the key to the whole thing. I'm the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Now what does God say about himself? I am holy. What does it mean? What does it mean to be holy? You guys, this is, this is what is so awesome about God. And this is what we hate so much about God. This is the wow factor of God. The desirability of God. And this is why we despise God and run from God and question God. This is it. God is holy. Holy means to be set apart, to be different. As Christians, we are twoists. There's two main realities in the universe. One is God. The other is everything else. God and everything else. And he is set apart from everything else. He's different. He's a, he's a cut above. There's no one like him. As he says in, in Leviticus 11.45, I am the Lord. The Lord can mean king or master, but here it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He's saying, I am Yahweh. That is God's holy name. It's used over 6,000 times of him in the Old Testament. His holy name. And it means that he is sufficient, needing nothing. You remember when he reveals his holy name to Moses, you've got that strange picture with the fire burning in the bush. What was so weird about it? Is it weird because Moses has never seen a bush? No. Is it weird because Moses has never seen fire? No. Is it weird because Moses has never seen a bush on fire? No, not weird. What was weird about it? The fire did not consume the bush. If you've ever been camping, what do you have to keep putting in the fire before long? More wood. Why? The fire needs the wood. Except for this fire needs no wood. It needs no help. It needs no source of life. In itself, it is life. It is all that it needs. It's a picture of God's sufficiency. He needs nothing. He never had a start, a cause, or a beginning. He always has been in his perfection. He is sufficient. How different that is from us and all of his creation. He's sufficient, he needs nothing, and that means that in himself, he is life. He has life. All of life comes from him. In himself, he is truth. All truth has come from him. He is the truth, the ultimate truth. Not only that, he is beauty. He is beauty. Everything good, everything beautiful you've ever seen or enjoyed came from him. It came out of something that he is. God is holy. In the Bible, sometimes holiness is synonymous with beauty. Set apart. Why do you love the certain things you love? They're just set apart. They're different to you. They're beautiful. God is holy. He's sufficient. He's also the creator. So he has made everything. Everything that exists right now, he is sustaining. He's sustaining everything. You're alive right now because he made you, and you are remaining alive because he is keeping you alive. 
He owns everything, and everything is for his purposes. He's holy. Not only that, he's pure, perfect purity. This is hard for us to deal with, perfect purity. Um, Are you a good person? Now, if you've been here long enough, you're all trained to say, nope. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) Me neither. Um, But in a manner of speaking, do you do good things? Do you love good things? Well, sure. And how, how pure, how enduring is your love? I know even with my own kids, I love them, and then they're difficult, and I love them, and then they're difficult, and I'm like, stop! <laughs> what happened to me? What happened to me? I love them, but my, my love is it's cracked, it's weak, it's flawed. It struggles. It has to repent. And if we press in deeper... You know, I love my wife. I love her more than I love anybody else. But how many times do I not love her and how I act towards her or with what's in my mind or in my heart? See, see, I've got a little bit there, but I'm not pure in it. I'm tainted. God is pure. And when he loves, he loves And you know when you love something, you also hate its opposite. Amen? If you love something, you hate its opposite. So if there's someone in your life that you really love, if someone else tries to hurt them, how are you going to feel about that situation? You're going to hate it. Okay? Anytime you love something, you hate its opposite. God loves what's true and what's right and what's beautiful. He loves it. And so how does he feel about what is evil? He hates it. And he should. Part of our problem with God's holiness is we're like, mellow out a little bit. Could you love me a little less and demand a little less of me? Can we have a more casual approach to this? Could you just kind of be disappointed with my evil instead of me deserving wrath? Mellow out, God. Don't be holy. Don't be holy. And God says... I'm holy. I'm holy. And we need him to be holy. We need him to be holy. That's our only sense of satisfaction. This is what makes him worthy of our lives, worthy of our worship, worthy of our hope. This is, this is why heaven is never going to be boring. Because he's holy, he's set apart, he's different. You're never going to get to the end where you're like, oh, I've seen it all of God. Never. He, this is his wow fact. This is what we need, it's what we need, and it's what we hate. We hate it because it also means he's the judge. He's cause, he's truth, he's beauty, he created everything, it's all his. That means it all answers to him according to his law, his purposes. He is the judge. So, all of that, Leviticus 11.45, I'm the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall be holy, for I am holy. We see now that this holy God has taken a little group of people, an undeserving people, and totally by grace he saved them and brought them to himself. And he said, I've saved you to be your God. I want to be God to you. Everything I am, I want to give to you. Thrill you, guide you, protect you, lead you, save you. I'm your God. But if we're going to come together, something has to happen, God is saying. Because, right, what's his name? I'm the Lord. That means I'm holy. So if we're going to come together, I'm going to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. What needs to happen 
to God's people before they can enjoy the presence of God as their God. He's holy. That's not changing. He doesn't turn down the dial on that. So if we're going to come to him and he's holy, guess what has to happen to us? We have to be holy. We have to be holy. So we're holy to him, set apart for his purposes to belong to him. And that means he's holy to us. He is set apart in our hearts. If God is holy to you actually, that means you have a a set apart kind of love and passion and value for him. So he is to be holy to us. And then also we are to be holy like him. So if we're going to come close to a God who's set apart, what what is that going to mean for us in our world? We're going to be set apart, aren't we, to him from the world. So that means his holiness is going to be expressed in our lives, and in some way we're going to look different from everybody else. That's the big picture here. So what do you think? What are these laws for in Leviticus? They are to make God's people holy, set apart, To be different. Here you have a minority group going to a majority world, and they're going to have to be different, set apart to God. And so, culturally, they're going to be holy. What they eat, how they dress, it's going to be different. Sometimes we have no idea why it's different. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. Mm. Don't know, long time ago. But I do know this, what's it for? Different, set apart. You're wearing different stuff. Why are you wearing different stuff? You're different. You're set apart. They're going to worship differently. Now, that makes sense. They're worshiping a different God. He's going to want to be worshipped differently. So there's different uh, worship rules. Not only that, politically, this is a theocracy, a one-time thing where God is actually king over the nation. So they're going to do government differently. They're going to be holy in that. Finally, morally, these things that never change, they're going to be holy in their morals. So what's the point of the law, folks? that God's people would be holy to a holy God. Now, if we're thinking a big picture, let me just ask you this question. How did it work? God gave his people the law. How did that go? How did it work? Isn't it amazing to realize as we're thinking of the Old Testament that the entire thing ends as a disappointment? If all you had was the Old Testament, you'd be like, golly, this stinks. We're still... We failed. It's a disappointment. It's a hopeful disappointment. But it's a disappointment. Here's the problem. Despite the awesome honor, Israel despised God's holiness. They did not want to be holy. He did not have their heart. He did not have their lives. They were supposed to be different from the nations, but guess what? They became just like or worse than the nations. This is the message of the prophets. Listen to this from Isaiah 5. 24, therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble, so their root will be as rottenness, for they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and has despised the, Holy One, the word of the Holy One of Israel. How did they feel about God's holiness? They didn't care. They despised it. And what did they do with his law? They didn't keep it. They didn't despise it. They didn't want his holiness. They didn't like his holiness. They rebelled against his holiness. Ezekiel 20, 39, the prophet says, As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, Go serve every one of you as idols, now and hereafter, if you won't listen to me. But my holy name you shall no more profane. So what did they want, Israel? I'm going to go serve idols. I'm going to go serve other things. I'm going to go have other gods. And God said, fine, go do that, but we're not going to be together anymore. I'm done. Exile, the end. 
temple destroyed, nation over. Failure. But it's a hopeful failure. Listen to this promise in Isaiah 62. Just one example. Isaiah 62, verse 4. You, one day, God says, you'll no more be termed forsaken. Your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her. (laughs) And your land married. For the Lord delights in you. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Verse 11, Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him, his recompense before him, and they shall be called the holy people. What are they going to be called one day? The holy people. And they're going to be holy like a, did you hear it? What's the image? Holy like a bride. That's a beautiful kind of holiness. I like that. My wife is holy to me. She's set apart. She's different. I love her in a different way than I love anybody else. And God says of his people, that's the way it's going to be me and you. Did you hear what we're going to be called? My delight is in her. Would you dare call yourself that? God's delight is in me. Hmm. So how is it? How is it that people who hate God's holiness, deny God's holiness, end up being holy like a bride? How is it? What's the answer to the Old Testament? I'm going to fly over it quick. Luke 1.35, the angel angel says to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The child to be born will be called, you know what he's going to be called? Holy. The Son of God. Who's Jesus? Jesus. He's the Holy One. He's the One. Isaiah 62, remember somebody's coming? He's going to come. His recompense will be with him. He's going to make the people holy like a bride. Jesus, the Holy One. And then what does Jesus say about himself in Matthew 5, 17? Don't think that I've come to abolish the law, he says. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. God's people could never keep the law, his holy standards. Only one person ever did it. And who is that? Jesus. He kept it perfectly. In fact, he fills it up. He completes it. He brings it all together. And then if we were going to read further, we'd get to the book of Ephesians. Paul's talking about marriage, but really he's talking about Jesus. And in Ephesians 5.25, Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives. Okay. And then he blows the whole thing up. Listen to this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Jesus give himself up for the church? That's right. On the cross. Died on the cross and he gave himself up for her that... When you're reading the Bible and you get a that word, that's a cause-effect word. That's a purpose word. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be, can you guess, holy. Jesus is the Holy One who fulfills the law to do what none of us can do and make us holy like a bride. Is it inconsistent that I don't wear tassels on my hat um, and 
kill cows every here and there and never eat pork? Am I ignoring certain parts of the Bible? No, I'm reading the Bible. It's the way it's meant to be read. The law was never going to save us. That's the point. We can't be holy on our own strength. We cannot do it. Israel is a case study for us to show us the sinful human heart. I cannot keep God's standards. I have one hope, and God guided all of history to show us this is the purpose of the law. If you're going to be with me, God says, you're going to have to be holy. And we look at him and say, I can't. And there's one answer to this. And what's the answer? Jesus did. Jesus did. Jesus did. He is our holiness. He makes us holy like a bride. If you trust in Jesus, let me challenge you with this. Your title is my delight is in her. For me, I I can't even believe that's true. I'll be honest with you. I can't believe it. That a holy God, the sufficient one, the beautiful one, ultimate truth, the creator, the judge, that he would look at me and say, my delight is in you. I believe it, but I don't believe it. What about you? His delight is in you if you're in Christ. If you want that, if you're looking at yourself and saying, I'm not holy, I can never be holy, I've got to be right with a holy God, look to Jesus. He fulfilled the law. He completes it. And so we don't have the same kind of kingdom as the Old Testament because Jesus said, my kingdom's not out of this world. We've got a different king. Jesus is king. He reigns in our hearts. And we don't dress the same way because it's not about that anymore. To be holy, God says, worship in spirit and truth. Jesus said in John 4, you don't go to the temple in Jerusalem to worship anymore. He said, I'm the temple. You don't have to go to a special place. And then he says, if you're in me, you're the temple. So how do we worship together? <laughs> Just like this. It's all fulfilled in Christ. And so if anyone ever says, oh, you're inconsistent because you don't follow the Old Testament, you say, oh, I'm, I'm very consistent because Christ fulfilled it for me. It leads me to him. It pushes me to him. It shows me him. Does that make sense? So the problem in the Old Testament with the law is showing us the real problem of our discord with a holy God. And that problem is only fixed through his holy son, Jesus Christ, and what he's done. All right, now let's talk about the hard one. What about, okay, fine, love in Jesus. What about the apparent genocide? Well, just like we did last week, talking about evil, we always need to define our terms. So what is genocide? What is it? Uh, Don't even like to think about it, but here's what I think it is. It's a systematic killing of a group of people based on their race or nation. True? But the reason you're doing it is that it's based on what? Race or nation. Okay. Now, there are several obvious reasons right away why the stuff you read about in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is not genocide. Because it is not based on race or nation. Listen to this from Numbers 33, 50 and following. Numbers 33, 50. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their 
disfigured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given the land to you to possess it. You just notice right away in that text, what does he tell Israel to do with the people who live in Canaan? Drive them out. And then what does he tell them to destroy? Idols. Drive them out. Destroy their idols. Now that was verses 50 to 53. Let me read to you now 55 to 56. This is amazing. God says, But if you don't drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain will be as barbs in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble you in the land where you dwell. And now listen carefully. He says, And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. Okay. So what's going to happen if Israel doesn't drive out the nations and wreck the idols? The people there are going to be a snare to them. And a snare in what way? Israel will become like them and worship their idols. And if Israel becomes like the Canaanites and worship Canaanite idols, what is God going to do to Israel? He's going to do the same thing to Israel as he's doing to the Canaanites. Now, in the end, did God do the same thing to Israel as he did to the Canaanites? Israel comes in and wipes out the ites. That's my summary, okay, all the ites. Later in Israel's history, Israel, the north, gets wiped out by Assyria. Judah in the south, wiped out by Babylon. Is this about that ethnicity? Is this about ethnicity? Does it have anything to do with ethnicity? Not really. What's it about? It's about idols. It's about idols. God is not friendly toward idol worship. He's not friendly. The issue is not ethnicity. This is not genocide. The issue is idolatry because God is holy. This is idolicide, if you want. I don't know if that's a word. It's idolicide. I mean, listen to this. God waited 400 years, he says in Genesis 15. Part of the reason Israel went to be slaves in Egypt is because God was not ready to bring judgment on the Canaanites because they just, he's too patient. He waited 400 years longer. So it's not enough yet, too patient. He waited. But then, when the time came, God brought judgment upon them. So this is what I'm saying about this. This is what people call the holy war, um, this is, this is the explanation here. In this unique time and place, Israel was God's judgment on idolicide. Or this is an example of God's feelings towards idolatry. This is a one-time example. Okay? Now, let's just think here again to define the terms. What is idolatry? It's, you, don't need a, you don't need a statue for this. Okay? You don't need to... You don't need to go to the palm reader place for this. It sounds like, oh, let's go to the British Museum and see how people used to do idolatry. Everybody does idolatry. Idolatry is any time you substitute the holy God for something else in his place. And you look to something other than the holy God to provide you with what only the holy God can give. Idolatry, meaning, or uh, identity, meaning, security, pleasure, joy, 
Anytime you say, oh, I'm going to serve this, and you put it in such a high place in your life that where it takes God's place, that is idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping or serving anything other than the real God. And so what do you think? Is it possible to be nominally, in name only, serving the real God while practically being an idolater? In other words, can you go to church and talk about God's holiness and talk about Jesus, but in your heart be worshiping idols? Okay, Idolaters Anonymous. Hi, my name's Matt, and I'm an idolater. I've done that in this room. Whether it's Molech or money, humans look to things other than God to provide them with things that only God can give. And they give praise to things that aren't God, that belongs only to God. In other words, idolatry is really the practical expression of despising God's holiness. He is worthy of everything, and we basically say, no, you're not. He is ultimate beauty, and we say, no, you aren't. He is truth and righteousness, and we say, I can do better. We're idolaters. In the old world, you had statues of gods, and now we just have wealth to love, fearing what people think, an inappropriate use of sensuality. Go look with eyes open. See if you can find any idols today. Send me an email. Go grocery shopping. Go grocery shopping and tell me about the idols you find in the magazines staring at you when you're checking out. Look for them. Look for them. Watch commercials. Show me. Who are, who are the gods in our land? And if you really want to press in deeper, ask yourself, what are my idols? I've had an idol of identity. I've tried to find my identity in wrong places. And here's the things with idolatry. Because only God is holy. If you worship and follow him, that will lead to holy living. It's a necessary connection. But when you worship and follow idols, that will lead to e- evil. It will lead to evil. So it, let's go easy. Anybody ever lied before? Anybody was like, no, ah, you just did. <laughs> Why did you lie? Why did you lie? A lot of times it has to do with preserving people's view of yourself. You've got this view that you need to keep. I don't make mistakes or I wouldn't do something that evil or I didn't betray you. Or I, and you're trying to cover that up. And why, why are you doing that? You're, pre, what are you, you're preserving an identity. And where are you trying to get that identity? Well, if you're lying, you're not getting that identity from God at that point. You're getting it from your performance or from what people think of you. You lied when you lied because in that moment you were worshiping an idol. Any sin is idolatry expressed, lived out. So this is why this is so personal. We're not just talking about a theoretical war a long time ago. In the end, we're talking about God's response, a holy God's response to idolatry, and I'm reading this as someone who is an idolater. Okay? So, in Israel's situation, again, it's totally unique. 
We read from Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you to the land that you are entering to take possession in and clears away the nations before you, Hittites, Ites, 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 they're more numerous and mightier than you. When he gives them over to you, defeat them. Destroy it and destroy all the idols. So you've got special revelation to an underdog. Um, if you were uh, the, line, the line in Vegas back then, if you were going to go Israel versus the Ites, we'd all be putting our money on the Ites. More of them, better stuff. They're already entrenched. They have their towers. They have their armies. They have better technology. And so part of this is God is going to supernaturally use Israel to and show his holiness against idolatry. Okay, that's one thing. This is one one-time thing to vindicate God's holiness in that area. It was also a, a select, limited place. Was Israel allowed to treat every war in the same way? Now, they had specific rules for the, for the war against the people in this geography. They couldn't keep the money. They had to devote it all to the temple. They couldn't take any spoil because it belonged to God. It was his holy thing. Later on, they couldn't wipe everybody out. They couldn't even, they couldn't even do wars. David gets in trouble later for, doing, for thinking of a war to take more territory. They're not allowed to do that. So it was a select, limited place, specific boundaries, and it was a specific purpose. God decided in this time that these nations were ripe for his judgment because of their idolatry. If you do any historical or archaeological study about the Canaanites, they were a nasty, wicked people, extra-biblically. Extra-biblically. In other words, there's all this evidence about how, I won't go into it in detail, sexually deviant in amazing ways. And full of human sacrifice. The culture was corrupt. And God said enough. And God chose to use Israel to bring his judgment. It was a select purpose for holy judgment. It was also holy preservation. Why is God giving them the land and telling them to wipe out all these idols? So his people can be holy and ultimately the whole world can be saved through the Jewish king that will come. It's for holy judgment, holy preservation. Finally, what happened if a Canaanite repented? Were we like, sorry, got to kill you because you're a Canaanite? Well, think of Rahab. What was she like? She was a really holy person. Um, no, she was a prostitute in Jericho, part of the system. But when the spies come, she says, your God's different. Your God's holy. And uh, the Israelites said, uh, want to join? <laughs> Guess who Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-grandma is? Rahab, okay? You repent, you're in. God's got a soft spot for repentance. If you repent, he'll take care of you. So, really it comes down to this. We know because we're in a new covenant, a new time, a new place, a new king, that war like this is off the table, right? Is it possible for us to spread the faith with guns? No. That would be obviously anti-biblical. We look at this as, as a unique time and a unique place where with God's special revelation and his special plan and salvation, God gave a certain place to his people for the benefit of the world and used his people as judgment on those who live there. And so the real question is this. Does the holy God have the right to do things like this? That's the question. Does he have 
the right. What would it be like to judge God? What would it be like to be like, God, I've got a book for you to read. It's called Universal Values and Morality. Imagine God was like, oh, thanks. Uh, do you know who wrote it? <laughs> yeah. It, or really when we're judging him, I did. Right? Because when we're judging God, what are you assuming? Who knows what's right and wrong around here? I do. I know. God, read my book that I wrote. Let me show you holiness and righteousness. And what would God say to that? Really? Really? Did you, are you self-sufficient? Did you make everything? Are you the source of truth and beauty? Man, are you righteous, God could say? Do you even keep your own standard? Do you keep your own standard? If my own standard judged me on Judgment Day, just what I like about what other people do and say, I would just fail on my own standard. We haven't even brought into account God's standard. Who is holy enough to judge God? He has the right. He has the right. The one who gives life can take it. The one who sustains life can end it. The one who is the righteous judge can judge. And here's the thing. It's a fearful thing to be a sinner interacting with a holy God. That's true in Israel. That's true in Fountain Valley. It's a fearful thing to be a sinner and to interact with a holy God. I'm not holy. I've denied his holy name. He's not holy to me. He's not always precious to me, valuable to me. I'm an idolater. I haven't been holy like him. Folks, how many times is the church who claims to worship a holy God just like the nations? We're just like them. Serving idols, doing evil. Here's the truth when it comes to the holy war in the Old Testament. As we look at it and see it for what it is, it's a one-time example of what is an eternal constant. And it's God's wrath against idolatry because he is holy. And then we come down to the reality, I'm an idolater. I'm the Canaanite, deserving the judgment. What are we going to do? Well, as we saw with the problem of the law in the Old Testament answered in Christ... <laughs> This problem is also answered in Christ. Our memory verse for last month said, For our sake, God made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, the Holy One, who fulfilled and kept the law, was made to be sin on the cross. He, like an unrepentant Canaanite, was driven out of the city, and devoted to destruction. He was treated as unholy. He was treated like he had despised God's holy word. He was treated like that we had fulfilled the law, like he broke it. And he did that for you. And he did that for me to make us holy. 
So the Bible promises that when we repent and turn from our sin, turn from our idols, and trust in Jesus Christ, the promise is with that faith, we are qualitatively made holy. You are holy in Christ. You could not be more holy than you are in the way God sees you right now because you wear Jesus' holiness. He was treated like sin so that you might become his righteousness. He gave it to you, qualitatively holy in God's sight. And not only that, through trust in Christ's sacrifice, we receive the Holy Spirit. And so we grow to be passionately holy, to where we love God's holiness, and we want it to transform our lives, and we want to live in a way that's holy, set apart to him. Later, we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to say, Our Father, who art in heaven. And then what are we going to say? Hallowed be thy name. And what does that mean? We're not praying that God would be holy, right? Because he is. What are we praying? God, let me see it. Let me love how holy you are. Let me show everybody how holy you are. You know what our holy war is now, if you want to be holy? Colossians 3. Put to death. It's not the neighbor who bugs you. It's not your boss. Put to death your sin. The idols of your heart. Knock them down. Kick them over. Replace them with Jesus Christ. So again, the answer to the difficulties of the Old Testament point to our own difficulty. The reality is that God is holy and that we are sinners. But they also point us to the answer. The answer to this crisis of holiness is the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the Holy One who was treated as unholy in order to make us holy. So that God could say of us, my delight is in you. So what should we do? Let's revere God as holy. Let's remember that he's holy. Honor him as holy. Then let's enjoy his holiness through faith and repentance in Christ. We can be in the holy God's presence. We can have the holy one of the universe for us, with us, in us forever. Then let's take the Lord's Supper together. It's all about this bridge to holiness. We're going to take bread, symbolizing Jesus' body. He was torn to make you holy. His work transforms you. Eat it, ingest it by faith. He's changing you. He's feeding you. We're going to drink the juice. Represents his blood. His blood was shed to pay for your unholiness and to transform you and make you holy. As we eat that, we're, it points to the next feast together. You know, in the book of Revelation, we're all seated at the table, eating at God's table. You know what that feast is called? The wedding feast. Holy like a bride as we eat and as we drink because of what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. Lord, we just uh, confess our intellectual difficulties here, Lord, looking at the law. So much we couldn't go through, but we thank you for the, the clarity of the big picture. This is to make your people holy. You are holy. We thank you for how Jesus fulfills the law for us. Lord, we confess the, the confusion with 
which seems like the harshness of your justice. But we remember, that's nothing like hell. You hate idolatry. You are holy. Lord, we confess our own. And we need Jesus. We thank you that he is plenty, more than enough to make us holy. And so we come to you today with a a reverent joy, thanking you that Jesus is everything, he's enough, that we are right in him. And Lord, help us to believe now as we trust in Christ that we are your delight through Christ, that you love us, that we are holy to you like a bride. And as we finish our time together with the Lord's Supper uh, and a song or two, let us respond in ways that are fitting to what you've done, what you've promised, that we belong to you perfectly, cleanly, by your grace, through Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.